You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 221. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. On we go today with all of the applications of AI. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about applying artificial intelligence, um, specifically kind of machine learning optimization to construction projects. But now, today we're going to go kind of all the way in the other end of the spectrum here, and we're going to talk about using AI to understand emotion. How does that work, and why would we want to do it? Well, one expert is Dr. Alan Cohen, who has developed machine learning methods to measure emotional expressions in everyday life, enabling a new frontier of science. And the research that we're talking about today is changing the way we understand how humans express emotion, as well as you know raising questions to how we can use this to build more emotionally empathetic machines. So my guest today is a preeminent emotion and data scientist and a researcher at the University of California with a PhD in neuroscience. He is the executive director of the Hume Initiative. Dr. Alan Cohen, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to have you. I think this is a topic, I mean, we talk about AI all the time, but I feel like the topic we're going to get into today is something that um, I haven't gotten into on the show for a couple of years uh, in terms of like, you know, emotion and AI and, and in terms of like how that affects products and things like that. But um, before we get into that kind of topic, I just want to ask like, what what was it that like sparked your research interests um, in in the field that you're in. Tell me a little bit about uh, the field that you're in, like, because, you know, my takeaway is like emotion and AI, but maybe that doesn't do it justice for people listening to the show. So tell me a little bit about how, how you got in, into it. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a, there's a bottom-up explanation and there's a top-down explanation. And I'll start with top-down because that's really where my interests lie, which is realizing that it's really important for things that are making decisions on our behalf to understand the effects of those decisions on our feelings. And they don't need to actually read our minds. That's not how people operate. But coming from a psychology background, we as humans look at each other and we read each other's emotional expressions and we hear each other's language in a certain way. And even if somebody doesn't say, hey, this is why this is affecting me in this way, you can figure it out. You can, you know, update your decisions and how you how you process the world and make decisions to optimize for your effects on other people. And people do this instinctively because we have empathy. We have uh, sort of intuitive altruistic tendencies. And AI doesn't have this. AI doesn't have any, you know, intrinsic understanding of human feeling at all, or what different emotional expressions mean about what we're feeling, or whether they're good or bad. And so. For the purposes of training an algorithm that sees your facial expression or voice or, uh, or what you're, you're saying and doesn't have any, isn't given any context on that, it's just going to see that as a means to an end. Whatever objective mm-hmm. it has, maybe your facial expression indicates that you're going to buy something um, and something is inducing that facial expression uh, and it's able to close the loop on that and figure out ways to essentially influence your emotions, <laughs> good, or, good or bad. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. 
Um, and so that's why it's really important to be able to objectively measure emotion. And then, you know, the bottom up explanation is that there's been people in this field called affective computing uh, for many years who come from computer science, which is um, the field of trying to quantify emotional behavior using AI. And then there's emotion science, which has been this very separate endeavor um, that is obviously older, <laughs> goes back to Darwin, who wrote the expression of emotion in men and animals and conjectured about how emotions might have evolved. And the reason these fields haven't been talking to each other is because I think affective computing has for a long time thought the problem of measuring emotion had been solved, but it hadn't. And in, the, in emotion science, uh, they were just sort of used to not trying to incorporate computational models or formal models because it was just considered to be too difficult. And as a result, most of the theories are, are more based on conjecture or intuition. And what I'm trying to do now is bring those together. Okay. So, I mean, it, it, it sounds like you have a more specific criticism of the way AI is usually applied. I think we all say, hey, these companies like Google, um, I don't know why, I, well, it's easy to single out Google, but of course it's a big, big thing. Others, they're playing on our emotions. Maybe it's through a large machine learning model. Maybe it's just there are humans in the loop that know marketing and psychology and like to push certain content at us. And, and maybe it's not really, um, or maybe just human intelligence, not artificial intelligence. But I guess that's a starting point that a lot of people have a sense of. But I, I feel like you have kind of a more specific way of like pinpointing the problem. Would you say that's, um, that's correct? Or, or you have a specific approach to this problem? Yeah, and it's sort of future looking too. I think for the most part, AI systems today have been, you know, very, very good <laughs> and uh, have, you know, Google search is the most amazing tool that's ever existed, I think, in the history of humankind. And it's optimized for what we click on and it hasn't been a problem at all, for the most part. I would actually saying at all is probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but uh, there are cases where the things that we're optimizing for, which could be click-through or it could be engagement, uh, they're, they're well-intentioned, but the machine learns to optimize for them in ways that are not necessarily good for us, using methods that aren't good for us. And those can also be exploited by humans uh, who may have bad intent or, uh, or may be accidentally kind of exploiting these tendencies, like internet trolls, for example, who are trying to get us to be engaged. Uh, the algorithm is also trying to get us to be engaged. And so the algorithm and the trolls are working together. That's the kind of thing you want to prevent by understanding the means through which the algorithm is actually analyzing human behavior and responding. And it, it's sort of an interpretability issue because if you know how the algorithm is saying is getting people to be engaged and it happens to be provoking people or making people angry on purpose, the only way to figure that out is to be able to understand the human responses and be able to tell the algorithm, don't do this. Don't, don't do something that's going to make people angry. So what's your approach to like, you know, uh, coming up with a solution to that? We can get into your research in a bit, but I'm thinking more high level, like, okay, you mentioned before, um, you know, these things are like some, let's say some algorithm will look at our facial expressions to see if we're likely to buy something or not. Like, the case for funding that really simple, uh, but how can you? Um, it's almost like there's a there's a, a a a business or structural issue that you have to overcome in order to um, get something a little bit more human centric to be not just uh, produced and funded, but to actually be rolled out. 
Yeah, I mean, people people do level that criticism. I think to the extent that there is a business issue, it hasn't really been the main blocker yet. I think that if if you're training an algorithm that's going to optimize just for the next thing that we do, um, it could be optimizing for that at the expense of what our long-term interaction with that technology will be. So if, if it's an algorithm that's reading our facial expressions and it's, you know, and let's say, you know, you're, you're a recovering alcoholic and it realizes you're in a moment of weakness. This is a time when you're liable to buy alcohol and it shows you alcohol ads or whatever, you know, this, this is not a technology. This is a technology that, uh, could be successful in optimizing its immediate objective, but you're not going to go back to that thing. If you're if you're serious about recovering uh, from right. your, whatever your long-term objectives are, you're not going to interact with that technology for very long. And so it, it's in the business interest of the people designing that technology too, to make sure that the objectives it uses are, uh, you know, good for people's well-being. And I think, you know, whether it's, whether it's, and there, there are ways of, of even, you know, Maybe there are ways of getting long-term usage uh, that are that are not good either, like a, a kind of habit formation, addictive behavior. But even then, long-term, it's not going to be a good for the business because parents are going to keep their children away from it. There's going to be societal interventions and so forth. So I think it's not necessarily business objective that's in the way. I think the, the, the main objective, or the main obstacle has been that it's easier to optimize for immediate heuristics where you have really solid, high-signal indications of human behavior, like whether they actually ended up clicking on something, than it is to optimize for indicators of well-being, which, uh, you know, we didn't have good ways of measuring those. <laughs> and I think we're still developing them. And we're, we're pretty close now to being able to say, hey, look, you have a pretty good array of indicators of well-being to optimize for that you can at least make sure that the uh, algorithm isn't choosing strategies that come at the expense of well-being. Yeah, so a couple ideas to to summarize that I I think it's to tell me if this is correct. First of all, you know, if you you have companies uh, focusing their product on on the long term um, profit rather than short term, okay, that that doesn't necessarily mean it's in the uh, consumer's interest, but more often than not, it's going to be more aligned long term than than short term. And then secondly, the issue is it's very e- easy to act on short-term feedback. Um, so in other words, you want to try to, you, you want to try to get that long-term feedback. I mean, it could be, um, you know, something as simple as, um, you know, Hey, clicks versus did I actually go in and like read the article and share it or whatever? I know it's probably short-term versus shorter term in that example, but Still, you know, it's um, it's it at least yeah. would prevent the hey, I didn't mean to go here. That just tricked. It's me. a move in the right uh, direction, for sure. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then, so if you get longer and longer term, I don't know, you know, for an article, I don't know what the long term effect would be. Uh, but um, you know, any 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 other metrics that we could do to kind of push that time horizon out would actually give us better products. Um, yeah, I, I think is the I think is the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so I I, I, I want to get more in specifics now in terms of like what you're doing. Um, I saw your like emotional data sets and models. Um, and it's funny to say like, Oh, the the data set, it almost sounds like the data set has emotions. Uh, but, uh, (laughs) it, it, I, you know, I, I was, uh, looking around your website. I see you have like, um, all sorts of, uh, data sets of, um, you know, humans making facial expressions, humans making sounds, tones of voice, uh, text, things like that. So tell me, like, how um, were you the one who gathered this data set together? Like, why did you do this? And, and, and where are you going with this? Yeah, totally. 
So this brings me back to sort of the bottom-up approach, which is, you know, there was affective computing, there was emotion science, and the way that people had approached understanding emotion and giving AI an interpretable understanding of human emotional behavior that you want to look out for is uh, by training models that recognize, essentially, at first it was six facial expressions that came out of the early days of psychology research. This goes back to Paul Ekman in the 1960s, going around to different countries with these pictures of what he thought were kind of the six basic emotional expressions, happiness, sadness, anger, fear, disgust, and surprise, and realizing that there was some degree of universality to the recognition of these expressions. And then they kind of stuck and the field kind of became uh, situated around the idea that there are these six emotions to study. And then later on, when, when affective computing came around, uh, the, the, a quick per perusal of the literature revealed that, you know, people are focusing on six emotions. These must be the six emotions that we want to be able to measure. And so they got together data sets of people posing these expressions that were assumed to map onto these emotions. And the algorithms were trained to recognize those posed expressions. And that today, that is like the main approach that people use. Another approach is the facial action coding system, also invented in the 1960s, which is supposedly this way of taking human raters who are trained and help, helping them to actually identify facial muscle movements. And then you can potentially train an algorithm with that. The problem is that people can't really identify facial muscle movements just by inspection. Um, and so, you know, it's not, not the best approach either. And then, uh, you know, people have only recently started looking at other modalities of emotional behavior, like the voice and language, and, and these turn out to be more important than facial expression overall. So um, what's, you know, the, 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 the new challenge is to develop algorithms that capture more than just this kind of really reductive understanding of human emotion, which incidentally captures about 30% of what we actually are conveying with our face, let alone vocal expression, language, and so forth. And the more recent approaches have been, let's pull a bunch of data from the internet and let's label it with a lot of different emotions. And a lot of that was inspired by my early work, which was just, just focusing on what is the broader taxonomy of emotional behavior if it's not these six emotions. And so that put us in a, in a good direction but when you have raters rating data from the internet in terms of these emotion categories, there's biases in the ratings. So there's a ceiling to how well you can do with just that approach. For instance, there's a facial expression people recognize as being a, an expression associated with pride. But if you have raters rate expressions in this term, in terms of pride, they're going to, everything they, every facial expression they see of somebody wearing sunglasses looks like pride to them. And so the pride detector for the, al the algorithm that you train ends up being a, pride, a sunglasses detector instead of a pride expression uh, measurement. And, gotcha. and you, yeah, you, face, you face various issues like that. That's, so if that's you want to give the, off, so if you want to <laughs> uh, make people think you're prideful, just put on a pair of sunglasses and, uh, and walk around. Oh, undeniably, um, right? <laughs> yeah. If you're wearing sunglasses right now, <laughs> and your audience might think, I don't know if they see the video, but <laughs> yeah, they might think you're expressing pride the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's another thing where it's always people who listen on audio always like think I look very differently than what how I really look, but that's a whole other <laughs> issue. Um, yeah. So, all right, I, I my takeaway from that is we started with this like kind of six facial expressions from the 1960s. It sounds like you're doing something much more you know sophisticated and in depth than that. Um, and so, I, there are kind of two directions I want to go here. 
Oh, um, and I'm trying to figure out what order they are, but let me just say, say, let me just say them and then we'll figure out what order to tackle them. One, I want to know like what your emotional model is. Like what, what does the, what does the human mathematical space of emotions look like? Um, and you know, I see on the, um, on the website, you can like, uh, th- there's like this, like 3d map of dots that you can, um, you can peruse. And so I, I want to know what that's about. Uh, but then secondly, like, what would you say is your dream uh, application to all of this? It might not be like the the 30-year dream, but maybe like the five-year dream. I don't know. Uh, take your pick, but I'm just trying to get a sense of like, like, like I, I feel like you have uh, some ideas on how this could be integrated into all the products that we use that would, that really excite you. So um which one do you want to tackle first, the 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 yeah. dream application or the or the mathematical space? Yeah, let's let's talk about the mathematical split space just because I had just been talking about you know kind of old ways of thinking about emotion, and what you want is to be able to say if I represent a facial expression with these different numbers, like twenty five different numbers, let's say thirty, hundred, two, three, however many different variables you need. Can I capture all the information people gather from it? If it's, you know, there's a theory that facial expressions and other emotional behaviors can be reduced to valence with arousal. So whether something is unpleasant or pleasant or, you know, calm or excited. Then mm. these are two dimensions. And apparently people think that if you represent things along these dimensions, you explain everything else. That's patently false. It, so it's, it's like, like a, it's, it's like a plane. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very, that's like an extremely reductive way of looking at ex- emotion and if you look at what it actually captures, even using sort of the most fancy nonlinear models that you can. That, that, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you with a, a non sequitur, but that's almost <laughs> like one of those business school uh, planes, like that, yeah. you know, squares that you make and you like put the dots in there. And yeah, yeah, very people, simple. People, I mean, you know, these, these representations, some representations are sometimes useful because it's so easy to conceive of them, to like look at them and understand them. But that's yeah. part of the trap though, too, is that... <laughs> Like they're so kind of seductive in their simplicity that you 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 fail to realize, oh, well, along valence and arousal, fear and anger are the same. They're both negative and high arousal. And yet the experience of fear is very different than the experience of anger. The expression right. that people use for fear is very different than anger. And that's just among the traditionally studied emotions. And then you have a much more complex space where you have people feeling embarrassed or awe-inspired or contemptuous and not angry or they, you know, there's a difference between disgust, which is a traditionally studied emotion, and the feeling of cringe when you see somebody in pain. Um, mm. That is, you know, they're systematically different. Different effects, actually, they're physiological effects that you see. Uh, disgust actually causes kind of a gastrointestinal response in your body, mm. whereas empathic like, pain doesn't. It's, it's a totally different thing. Um, and you know, all these different nuances. And uh, the question is, so how many variables do you need? It's not these two variables. You, you really need a new kind of mathematical framework for figuring that out. And so that's, that's what kind of my research focused on first. And we introduced a theory called semantic space theory, which is catching on, which is the idea that you want to be able to determine when you're measuring emotional behavior, the dimensions it lies along, the distribution of behaviors along those dimensions and how you should conceptualize them. Like what's the most efficient way of talking about these just for the sake of theory development and actually being able to communicate your findings. And it turns out that emotional behaviors are really complex. You need at least 25 dimensions to understand emotion in the voice, at least 28 to understand emotion in the face, 
or how we express these things, how, what they're associated with, the, uh, the correlation between facial expression and what we self-report our experiences being. All of these things, you need lots of dimensions to understand. The distribution is not as simple as, they, as different theories would imply. So there's, there's been an assumption that you kind of just sort things into different categories, but that's not at all true. It's actually a continuous blend. You might have five different dimensions of expression where facial expression is both contemptuous and a little bit sad and a little bit surprised at the same time. And that is a facial expression people recognize as being all of those things. So it's really much more complicated. Um, so having laid out that theory by basically analyzing data from many different expressions across many cultures and people's judgments of them and what, how, when they use them in different situations and when they're experiencing different things, you know, that, that sort of presented kind of a map of this is what, this is what, you know, algorithms need to understand if they're going to capture this stuff. So that's uh, where, you know, we take off from the kind of affective computing perspective is how do you understand these things? What kind of data do you need? And it turns out you can't just get perceptual data from the internet or ratings of people from the uh, rating, like images or videos or recordings that you gather randomly. You really need people to be experiencing emotions and expressing them and giving you their own take on what these mean. First of all, you need to evoke a lot of different kinds of emotional states yeah. and expressions. And now then I'm curious, like how do you how do you gather that? Like you can't provoke so, an emotion in someone. <laughs> yeah, I mean you kind of can't. So we use large scale experiments where we have people looking at really really evocative things um, okay. from. Every walk of life, you know, it could be a beautiful sunset, it could be an amazing scene, an explosion, or some, you know, car accidents, uh, you know, things that are scary or disgusting, or uh, or incredibly awe-inspiring or incredibly amusing. And we have people report on what they're feeling and they express themselves, and that's you know one way to go about it. And now you have a whole different correlation between. Uh, people's demographics and what they're expressing and what they're feeling than what you would see in, in the wild. Um, and it's a lower, the, the, the people's demographics are not very predictive because there's certain uh, stimuli that evoke the same expression in everybody, the same experience in everybody. So you can control for that. You can randomize what somebody is seeing relative to who they are. If you, just, if you just took YouTube videos of people watching something gory, it would be a bunch of, you know, not the not the kind of people who actually uh, are yeah. re representative of the population. Well, they're, these are, they're also performing <laughs> a little bit, right? They're performing, I mean, but they're also not necessarily performing a negative emotion, which is kind of you know, so, <laughs> like, yeah, it's 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 just not the right data. You really need um, like real responses. I'm not saying we actually have people watch gore, which we don't typically, and we have people watch maybe a horror movie kind of gore, where it's like they know it's so, fake, but. Yes. Yeah, so so yeah. this this model that you've built, the, this semantic space. How do you know? Like, um, what's your what's your criteria for how you know? Like, it's a good model. What are you trying to make it useful for? So there's the statistical criteria first. Like, what is yeah. the phenomenon to be explained? Because the the key insight is that you know there's there's going to be variability across different people, right? But there's also going to be right. some degree of reliability in people's responses. Right, and so it's, your model should be able to predict what's reliable. It can't possibly predict what's variable. <laughs> like, right, like even you know it, it, the same facial movement labeled by different people when those people are forming it. Um, the model should be able to, to come to the same label, and independent of uh, of, of what somebody says, their, their 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 expression means. 
And then you should be able to see, like we've explained the systematic variability in what people say they're expressing as a function of their muscle movements. And then there's some individual variability in how they label that expression, which is unexplainable. We can't even attempt to explain it unless we have, you know, more data on those individuals. So that, that the, the first you, you figure out what it is that's systematic that you can't explain, then you train a model, and then you see how much of the systematic variance it's explaining. And this is, this is, this, this is a departure from like the way people traditionally think of machine learning, which is that ground truth is objective and you can do 100% well with you know, any ground truth because it's just labels of whether there's a bicycle in the scene. And, and typically the labels are, are mostly accurate. So that's somewhat true, although there are also errors that you need to account right. for. But when you're talking about emotion, there's much more subjective, right? <laughs> like what if facial expression actually means? People might have different interpretations. And so you want to know what is the distribution of interpretations that you can predict. Was there anything that you had to do uh, differently that you, you know, that the, that, that you might um, typically, uh, than you might typically do in a machine learning model? I, it sounds like it's just supervised machine learning because you have the labels, right? But is there anything that you had to do specifically differently because the ground truth was so not really true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for one thing, what we can do is try to prevent the algorithm from being biased by demographics. Um, so if you just took perceptual judgments of images, right, like women would be rated differently than men and the algorithm would pick up on that and then it would be horrible because it would, in downstream applications, it would essentially be sexist. So you want, you want to avoid that. It's very, very important. Um, and so you want some way of saying, like, these are the same response across different people without it being influenced at all by their demographics. And so one way you can do that is you can force the algorithm to, to the extent possible, uh, try to predict what somebody's looking at, for example. So like I say, like everybody, different people looking at the same beautiful scenery um, have potentially different responses, may self-report differently. But what you can do is you can say, okay, let's average people's self-reported response to this. It's awe. So on average, this is awe. Um, and then the algorithm is seeing different people respond to this, men, women, people of different, from different countries, ethnicities, and so forth. And it has to predict awe uh, for everybody. <laughs> like, so it has to ignore okay. people's demographics. So if you, if you design an experiment carefully, and this is because there's the cause of manipulation and there's no relationship between who people are and what they're looking at, you can get the algorithm to actually have to ignore these things. Do you, like, what if, so... I'm sure you found correlations between demographics and response. So like, how do you have to then like um, uh, counteract that somehow or um, like take into account the demographics and see what component that is of the response? Um, so, I, I mean, it seems like just ignoring demographics completely when your data set does not match the demographics of the overall population is kind of dangerous in that area. Yeah, so we, we don't ignore demographics completely. Um, depends on what we're looking at. So let's say we're looking at different cultures, right? We might want to know a, a given facial expression could have different meanings versus in China versus the U.S. So we take those ratings in China and the U.S. and we apply them to the facial expression. Um, and maybe we get people imitating that facial expression or we identify that facial expression in response to videos. Um, and we then get the algorithm to be able to label it independently of who uh, uh, who's forming it basically. Gotcha. Uh, but, but what we do is we say, let's identify the meaning in the U S and China, both. They're just separate dimensions. Like whatever, 
there, there's a whole bunch of uh, inferences people make in the U.S., a whole bunch of inferences people make in China. Let's force the algorithm to make those inferences separately so that if it's the same expression in the U.S. as in China, it's predicting the Chinese expressions from the U.S. and it, the Chinese inferences from the U.S. expression, the U.S. inferences from the Chinese expression. And so it just has twice as many outputs. And then we try to see, is you know can we reduce the dimensionality of this output space that the algorithm is picking up on? And when, it, when you do that, it's like, okay, well, the algorithm is differenti- actually, in fact, differentiating 28 dimensions of facial expression. But uh, uh, some of those are culture-specific. So, you know, there's, there's seven dimensions that are, you know, unique to China or Ethiopia or India or Venezuela or wherever we else we collect data. And then there's 21 dimensions that actually the same objective movement to the face has the, the same meaning pretty much in every culture. Yeah. And, Why do you think that is? Do you, do you think it's, um, do you think it's uh, a, a human nature or do you think it's just information sharing between cultures over many years? I mean, I guess that's a deeper question. Than <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there's both, right? So we can't completely separate them with this kind of data, although people do. So historically, like in the emotion science, there's a big debate and people have gone into these remote, we call them remote cultures, but actually to them, they're not remote, right? To them, we're remote. But anyway, like small scale societies that have not much contact with what we would consider Western media or influence. Yeah. Um, and try to see if these people in those societies recognize the same expressions being the same things. And what, they're small scale studies, 10 people, 20 people, maybe from the society that you're interested in studying. And uh, you show them posed facial expressions and these studies have come to completely opposite conclusions. So there's actually not much we can say about mm-hmm. <laughs> universality mm-hmm. right now, unfortunately. We can gotcha. say, um, looking around the world, um, you know, at large scale societies where we were able to collect a lot more data, what are sort of the similarities across cultures? And is it the case that different cultures are more similar to the West because they've seen more Western media than to you know each other? And that's not the case. And mm-hmm. actually, the the the, the culture that is most representative of the global average in terms of the meaning of facial expressions is uh, our cultures in maritime Southeast Asia, for reasons we don't fully understand yet. But in, that, in, in maritime Southeast Asia, the correlations between facial expressions and the situations in which you find them in videos that are home videos from around the world. We did analysis of millions of videos and we published this in Nature back in 2021. And... Uh, the the culture you know they, for some reason in Indonesia they're they're very kind of similar to everywhere else. <laughs> interesting. Uh, and then you know interesting. The, the the big differences are between kind of for some reason India and um, uh, certain other cultures uh, or 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 you know China and certain other cultures, um, which is which is interesting. So on both extremes, you have South Asia, Southeast Asia, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and um, Southeast Asia is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> but, yeah. but 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 it, what's not the case is that India is more similar to the U.S. and China is more similar to the U.S. Even, even though they've seen more of U.S. media and Hollywood and exposure and stuff, actually they're right. more similar, both more similar to maritime Southeast Asia. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's an interesting fact. I don't know what to make of it, but it, it yeah, sounds I like really either. All right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, maybe some listeners will have ideas. Uh, you know, email us. Go to our locals. Um, let's. Uh, so yeah. Uh, one more thing um, that, that we need to talk about then is to go back to like what is your what is your dream application? Or maybe we could do a couple things. Like, what's your dream application ultimately, and what do you think yeah. we'll be able to 
uh, apply this research to in in the near future? What's it already doing? I don't know what it what it what what it's already doing. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, we have there's a lot of different um, kinds of the companies we work with currently, and um, you know, some of them are doing digital assistants, some of them are doing social robots. Uh, call centers, health tech, um, a lot of different areas. Um, there's AR, VR applications as well. Uh, what's kind of heating up right now are the spectrum from digital assistants, which kind of are disembodied voices that respond to your commands. <laughs> um, yeah. And then digital avatars, which are things that have or some representation of a body as well. And then social robots, which have actually a physical representation of a body. And But they all kind of have the same core technology for human interaction. And that's becoming very popular right now, especially because digital avatars are very easy to, compared to social robots, they're easier and you can put them in, the, in sort of AR, VR applications now and they're heating up. Um, but the question is, what do you optimize these things for? Like there's the kind of simple question of how do you get them to engage in authentic or understandable social interactions that are smooth and conversational? And that's a problem in itself, which is very important because you want... You want to be able to say, hey, uh, Google Assistant or Alexa or Siri, like, give me, do, do this, and then ask, have it ask clarifying questions and have it be more of a dialectic process that can actually, because that's how humans actually serve each other's needs too, and that, that's right. what you should do. But ultimately, what is the objective, right? How do you know whether this thing is working or not? How do you know whether it's delivering on the things that are good? And, and I think the, the, the key thing there is if you're already getting voice data, and you're already getting whatever else, language and maybe even facial expression, and it's all on device, you don't need to send it anywhere and it can be analyzed on device. You have a way you can say like, okay, this digital assistant, you know, I asked it to play me a song by Rolling Stones and it played me the wrong song. And it was like, throw me the bone by, you know, Henrik and the three kids or something, you know, <laughs> the completely opposite of when I say, oh, no, not this again. Like I've done this before, like stop, like don't do yeah. that. Um, you're, you, you generally speak to something that is doing something wrong with emotional intuition. You don't right. say like, I, I talk to my Alexa, I don't <laughs> abuse the Alexa because I feel like it's bad practice, but you know, you, you say like, Oh, come on, Alexa, yeah, you know, or something exactly. like that. So is, or, or, or whatever, or Siri or whatever thing you're using. So, yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't know what that means. It doesn't understand your emotional explanation because it could be, come on, or it could be, oh, come on, let's go. It could be, it could be a right, right, positive right. thing if it doesn't. So like, so like if, but imagine if it could understand that it did something wrong there and that right. could back propagate and the algorithm could be adjusted and updated so that it's better. And the next time it's less likely to do something wrong. Maybe it's either personalized for you because your responses might be different from the population. Maybe it's also optimized for the whole population so that on average, somebody is better off because this algorithm has been trained to backpropagate this negative signal and improve itself over time. That is yeah. the ideal application because that negative signal, and you can even corroborate this with test data, but is probably indicative of negative well-being. And you can, right, you can right, ask right. people like, after you update the algorithm that's optimized for that, like, are you you're better off overall in your life and they will probably will especially be. on those phones uh, on those yeah. uh, call centers you know when you're trying to get a, yes. something answered or something like that so yeah. yeah no i think that's a good answer i think that's um you know it's um it's interesting how we talk to ai's digital assistants whether it's something very sophisticated or very simple because we interact with all of them like they're kind of dropping this data on the floor and not um you know not not appropriate like if it was a human who we were talking to on the phone, they would, they would start to get it. They'd be like, yeah, yeah I shouldn't do that again. Or, or, Very Oh, quickly. okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 
Right. Uh, that's a good point. All right. Yeah. So yeah, this is a, this is a fascinating topic. I feel like I could, uh, I feel like we could open up so many more cans of, of worms here, <laughs> but, um, we're reaching about the end. Uh, maybe, uh, you could tell us, um, uh, first some like closing thoughts on what we talked about today and then, uh, where to find you, uh, on, online and, and what to do for people who, uh, who want to learn more or be involved or, or whatever. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, closing thoughts um, is, you know, if you're looking at the future of AI, um, it's the question is really what do we optimize for? Because it's going to get better and better and better at optimizing for whatever we give it. People know this as the AI alignment problem. Um, but even today, we're already seeing uh, situations where the algorithms optimize for something that we thought was good. And then it, it figures out strategies where, you know, they're negative for us. The question is, how do you solve this? I think the solution is going to have to do with measuring well-being. It has to be. The algorithm has to be able to say, I want to optimize directly for human well-being. Smarter it gets, the more direct it has to be. Right now, we can rely on heuristics and just make sure. We at least should start making sure that algorithmic updates are actually good for people. So that's that's really important to me. Um, and if you know that can take many forms in terms of applications. It can be digital assistants that can update themselves to be better for you so that you have a better life because your indications of frustration are down and you're, uh, you're expressing contentment more and all of that. Um, it can be health tech applications uh, where we're better at treating mood disorders because we can understand what different subtypes of mood disorders people have, different kinds of anxiety and depression, and diagnose them faster and see if those drugs are working and all that, or, you know, give them therapy and see if that's working and mess them to the right therapist and, help people when they're having an emergency, you know, when they're in pain or in distress and all, all of these different things kind of come down to well-being for me. Um, but yeah, so there's a huge number of applications. We have tools now to kind of help people pursue those applications. So if you're a developer and you're really interested in uh, finding a way to understand people's indicators of emotion and use that for their advantage, uh, please sign up for our waitlist. <laughs> you can find uh, it at hume.ai. I've, I've already done it. I just say, awesome. yeah, hume.ai <laughs> waitlist. Yes, I, I, yes. I, I'm on it. Thank you. So. Okay, so yeah, so we'll we'll be releasing a platform where you can, where you can access APIs pretty soon um, and be able to upload data, visualize people, you know, the the actual measurements of emotional behavior you have in your data, and draw insights from it and build into applications. Um, and it'll, it'll be a freemium model, so you can build you can build any application for free, and um, we'll have a price you know tiered pricing similar to any uh, kind of uh, service like that. Um, but yes, please sign up for our waitlist if you're interested. Uh, to check out our ethics guidelines, you can visit thehumaninitiative.org. So we brought together, and I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but a, a committee of independent. AI ethicists, researchers, emotion scientists, and cyber law experts and medical ethicists to come together and think about how should this technology be used? How do you, how can we make sure that people have their uh, privacy protected as it's used and make sure that it's being used to uh, help people and not to manipulate people all of that? And we have very clear ethical guidelines and concrete use cases that we support versus don't support and recommendations for the supported use cases. And please check that at the Human Initiative if you're interested in the ethics effort and want to contribute, feel free to reach out. Um, and if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out um, at hello at hume.ai. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's about the ethics effort, whether it's about products, and we're also doing science and we're publishing a paper on some of the findings I talked about today. Um, so please reach out also if you're a researcher and you're interested in collaborating, because we do a lot of that too. All so right. that's, 
Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'll make sure that all those links go on the show notes page, which will be localmaxradio.com slash 221. Wow, that's a, a big number already. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get all that information from you. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. All of these will be on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 221. Once again, that's hume.h hume.ai, h-u-m-e.ai, thehumeinitiative.org, and hello at hume.ai for the emails. Some related episodes, if you thought that was interesting, um, obviously there's one from two weeks ago, AI related to construction based on you know what, what else we're, we're, we're doing these days when we're talking about AI and trying to understand this emerging technology. Uh, um, I would also point you to an episode that I did last year on design with Scott Birkin, uh, Design Makes the World, his book, another one about, you know, trying to be empathetic while uh, while creating uh, creating your products. Another good example of that is Marsbot for AirPods, which unfortunately, now that Dennis and I have left Foursquare, I don't think it exists anymore, but maybe we'll bring it back in some way or another. If I know Dennis, maybe we'll bring it back in some way or another. This is episode 142. And then the one I mentioned on the show is Happy Maps, episode way back in episode 49, when I was talking to Danielle uh, Kersia about, um, you know, you um, using uh, um, maps and kind of looking at, at at sounds and emotions related to the places, not just simple routes and efficiencies. So that was a very interesting one to to circle back on. Again, one final thing: I've got a birthday coming up Tuesday, uh, the day this comes out. Really, or maybe this comes out a little bit beforehand. But if you're around in the Haverhill area, uh, the uh, the peddler's daughter get her grabbing some birthday drinks there at uh at uh, 8 p.m is it dangerous to announce this on the podcast no no it's not who's going to see this before it comes out but if you're in the area haverhill mass why not show up it's going to be a good time all right have a great week everyone that's the show to support the local maximum sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com the Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. It'll feel the power. 